Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the fifth chapter of John. You'll find the uh, notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. This morning, we continue our study of the Gospel of John, and in particular, we continue our study of the fifth chapter of John. I would like to read a large chunk of that chapter this morning. Um, We looked at the first 18 verses last week, which largely was the miracle of the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda and Jesus' subsequent radical, shocking claim to be equal with the Father. And I argued that the entire miracle was prepared and executed to bring about about this climactic declaration. And then the rest of the chapter is the longest uninterrupted speech of Jesus to his opponents in the gospel and the second longest uninterrupted speech of Jesus in the gospel, period. He has a longer section when he's teaching his disciples in the upper room. So this is the the rest of this chapter. If you have a red letter Bible, it's all red letters. Jesus does the miracle. He sets up the conflict. He, He drops the bomb of my father is working and I am working. And then the rest of the chapter is Jesus unpacking, explaining, and defending what he has said. It would probably take us four weeks to get through the rest of chapter five, but I'd like to read 19 through the end. So please read with me the entirety of what Jesus has to say, even though we'll just be looking at the first quarter of it here this morning. Actually, let's start back in verse um, 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord God, we want to believe this word. We do not want your son's judgment and condemnation of the Jews in Jerusalem to fall on us. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us the faith to receive this word that we might rightly understand what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, your equal that we might be guarded from error in thinking through these difficult and deep things, that we, would, um, that we would more fully know you, more rightly worship you, and more um, completely trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would argue that John chapter 5, this section of John, is some of the deepest theological teaching in Scripture. For my money, there is no single passage that more richly explains, lays out the Trinitarian nature of the Father and the Son than these verses. I think we get here the most extensive, detailed treatment of what does it mean that Jesus is the Son, that the Father is the Father? What does their relationship entail? What does that mean? Um, If you've ever studied the doctrine of the Trinity, it can be challenging. It is challenging, and it's rife with heresy on every side. I was telling Pastor Daniel before I got, when we were praying this morning, I just feel like there's landmines all around me. I don't want to be a heretic when I come out of the pulpit this morning. So I trust that, uh, I trust that God will give grace, and I trust that if I do, Pastor Daniel will love me enough to, or one of you guys, tell me. But it, no, it is challenging. Jesus' claim is shocking, And even as we are those who trust in the deity of Jesus, even as I've taught through John's gospel, John begins his gospel declaring in the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. As we zero in and look at that, don't let the shockingness of the claim miss you. There's there's really one fundamental tenet to Judaism or one foundational tenet, what's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And here, this Jewish carpenter, this itinerant preacher, this rabbi stands up during an unnamed feast of the Jews and says, my father works until now and I work till now. And the the Jews get it. There's no misunderstanding. He's making himself equal with God. What does that mean? Is this polytheism? Is he claiming to be another God? Are there two gods? What does he mean? They understand. This is the charge they're going to make that drives him to the cross. Blasphemy. Making himself equal with God. John, I would say, presents two reasons they drive him to the cross. That's the formal reason they give. And his, his exposure of their sin. They, they can't deal with that. But this is the formal charge they make. He's a blasphemer, they say. Why? He's, he's calling himself the son of God. In the Gospels, Jesus most commonly refers to himself as the son of man. A rather covert title. And so even though John has referred to Jesus as the Son and the Son of God, turn back to John chapter 1. He's been setting the groundwork for this discussion. You remember when we were back in chapter 1, I insisted that most of the major themes in the gospel are laid out in the first 18 verses. We, uh, We read in verse 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace in place or upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So in the prologue, John, the gospel writer, introduces Jesus as the Son. And yet this is the first time, I believe, that Jesus... Well, if you, if, if you think Jesus is talking in John 3.16, and he may be, then Jesus has already used this title. I tend to think that's likely the gospel writer writing, but this is one of the first times, and certainly the first public time in the gospel, that Jesus has taken this title upon himself, and it is shocking to his audience. He... he sets the scene. He, he intentionally creates the conflict. He, he sets this up. And I'll just rehearse what he, what he did from last week. He's in Jerusalem for an unnamed feast. Presumably Jerusalem is swollen, crowded, full. He comes to this, this pool and it's surrounded by invalids and sick and blind and lame and he picks one man out. And I argued that this miracle is not presented as a compassion miracle. Some of the miracles are, where the author of Scripture tells us that what's primarily at work is Jesus' compassion. We remembered the, the woman, who's, the, the widow whose son had died, and Jesus meets the funeral procession. He says he had compassion on her. I'm not saying Jesus didn't have compassion on this man. John doesn't mention it. That's not what he wants us to see. So this is not fundamentally presented as a miracle of compassion. Other times, Jesus does miracles in response to the faith of the one who needs help. That's not going on here. This man doesn't even know Jesus' name, even after Jesus has healed him. This man doesn't recognize Jesus as anyone notable. When Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He doesn't understand that Jesus is making an offer of healing. And we know in Jerusalem, the Jews had seen his signs. There are many who recognize Jesus at least as a miracle worker, not this man. So Jesus chooses one man, and we're told the criteria for the choice. Jesus knew he'd been there for a long time, and we're told he had been there for 38 years. This is a notoriously lame man. Everyone, presumably, who's come and gone in Jerusalem has seen him. He's notable. And the purpose there is that when Jesus heals him, you you can't argue, well, well, that was faked, that was a sham. No, this, this man's been lame for 38 years. And Jesus picks one man. doesn't heal them all. In other accounts, in Luke, for instance, he'd go to villages, he'd heal everybody. That's not what's going on here. He picks one man, one man who is undeniably, unquestionably, well-known, notoriously injured. And without casting a spell or even praying a prayer, he tells the man to get up. And the man is so miraculously healed that he gets up immediately. He's able to walk and carry a load. He, Jesus tells him to carry his mat. That sets the conflict because we're told, dun, 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 it's the Sabbath. Jesus knew that too. So he orchestrates the conflict. And sure enough, the Jews see this man and instead of rejoicing with him, instead of saying, hallelujah, praise God, that, hey, hey, it's not lawful for you to carry your mat. And, and let's face it, the Sabbath commandment is a legitimate commandment. The issue is not, why are you concerned about that commandment? The, the issue, I'd say, would be twofold. One, why is your first response to a notable work of God and miracle that, that heals this man and helps him immediately jump to that point? And secondly, is that really work? Is this man supposedly making a little extra money on the side as a professional mat carrier? Probably not. Um, and so the we're commanded not to work on the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. Israel was. Is this really work? And we know from extant writings of the rabbis that Jesus say there's all sorts of debate. Is it work? Well, if you could carry it under your arm, some would say it's not work. But if it's heavy enough to go on your shoulder, that's work. I mean, it's not entirely clear. This is what they harp on. And the man says, well, well the man who healed me, he, he told me to do that. And they say, well, who's he? He doesn't know. So then Jesus finds him again and warns him to sin no more, that nothing worse happens to you, he says, which suggests that the man's original illness may well have been a judgment on his own sin. And then the man turns around, goes straight away, and tells him, okay, it was Jesus. And then we read the, the first of two summary statements. The first is in verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. So we go from Jesus simply being a notable miracle worker, maybe a controversialist, because he'd cleansed the temple in chapter 2, but no direct mention of opposition to now they're persecuting Jesus. And in two verses time, they're going to go from persecuting to trying to kill him because of what Jesus says next. 
Jesus has created this moment, worked an undeniable, powerful miracle, done it on the Sabbath, so that he could make that answer in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. A jaw-dropping claim. This is one of the reasons you can't have Jesus simply as a good teacher. Good teachers don't make claims like this. This is either the claim of the Son of God or a megalomaniac or someone with, with mental problems. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Good teachers. And he's going to go on to make sure there's no misunderstanding of what he said. He's going to claim to raise the dead. He's going to claim to be the judge of all men at the end of time, to have all authority. No, no, he, he means what he's saying. And so the challenge for us is will we receive what he says? Will we take that in? Or will we, like the Jews in Jerusalem, not believe? So the rest of what Jesus says from 19 onward is him unpacking this. And you could break that big chunk into two sections in verses 19 to 28, which will probably take us two weeks to get through. Jesus gives a lot further clarity on what he means. He, he recognizes it's a big claim he has made. And he wants to guard against error, misunderstanding. And so he will unpack and explain what he means when he says he's the father's son and when he claims divine prerogative. Then, starting in verse 30 to the rest of the chapter, Jesus will point to witnesses, warrant, defense to make the claim. He recognizes that what he has said is audacious. He recognizes that such a claim would require a tremendous amount of evidence, a tremendous amount of witness. In other words, Jesus doesn't just expect people to take his word for it. So he points to John the Baptist, and he points to the miracles, and he points to the Father's own verbal testimony, and he points to the Scriptures. And on the basis of all of those witnesses, he says, you should receive his testimony. That's the movement of the text. So from 19 to 29, what is he saying? What does it mean? And also some of the significance. Why say this? I mean, why make such a point? Why create such a controversy? Why orchestrate such a moment? Well, Jesus is going to insist receiving, understanding, believing this testimony is critical to salvation. I raised the question last week. Why would he do this? Why would he so provoke the Jews in Jerusalem? Why would he create such a moment, drop such a bomb, I mean, he takes them from, from zero to we need to kill him in, in one statement. Well, because the content of that statement is crucial for us to believe and understand. So we're going to look through verses um, 19 to 24 this morning, God willing, that's the plan. And then we will try to make progress more fully through. And you'll look in your outline. I just quote the text. Jesus' uh, statements flow together. And the way I outlined it, I could have done it with just bullet points. This is a synthetic argument, meaning each point develops the last point. In fact, there's the word for that you see at the beginning of point B, for whatever the Father does, verse point C, for the Father loves, point D, for. Those, there's four fours in the text. They really kind of coordinate what Jesus is saying. So it's, it's less that these points line up and, and all line up neatly is rather they develop each other. But point one here, main point, Jesus is really making, I think, one primary, um, tr- primary truth to his teaching. He's trying to guard against two errors. He's just said he's equal with God. And he's guarding on the one hand against the error that he is in any way in competition to, opposed to, an alternate to the Father. As if anyone might think that what he is saying is somehow putting him in tension with the Father. As if you may have to choose between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to the Father. As if there's a rival claim to God. No, no, no. He says repeatedly in differing ways, everything he does is in harmony, lockstep with the Father. He acts in unison with the Father. They're united. There is no daylight between them. The other error he wants to guard against is lest anyone think he means he is anything less than fully God. He is not little g God. He is fully the Father's equal. So I'd say in one sense, everything Jesus says is guarding against those two errors. 
Do not think I've come in conflict with the Father. I've come in opposition to the Father. I've come in competition with the Father. Do not think I am anything less than God's equal. Those are the two claims. So your blanks here. The Son is absolutely subservient to and fully equal with the Father. The Son is absolutely subservient to and fully equal with the Father. Subservient. The definition I got from American Heritage 5th edition is this. Subordinate in capacity and function. I think it's a fair description of what Jesus is describing. You could put submissive. The point being, he fully orders himself under the Father's will. He fully organizes and orders his activity and what he does is in complete, perfect conformity with the Father. The Son is absolutely subservient to and fully equal with the Father. Um, now Jesus here is answering something unspoken. The assumption is they're gasping. They're what? What did he just say? And so Jesus answers their unspoken objection. What the ESV says Jesus said to them is really he answered them. And he introduces this with one of the many truly, truly statements in John, indicating what he's about to say is solemn, serious, heavy, weighty, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So your blank here is this. Here's the principle stated in simplicity. Here's the principle. Jesus is the son. Jesus claims divine prerogative. What he's just said is, look, my dad works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. I'm claiming whatever the father has the rights and the privileges to do, I have the same. That's what he's just said. So his first statement is primarily a guard against the notion of him in competition. The son can do nothing of his own accord. Literally in the Greek, from himself. Self-generated. But only what he sees the father doing. Everything Jesus does, he says, in other words, is an imitation in response to what he sees in the father. There is nothing original in him. That's a bold claim. But it's unmistakable. The language is clear. The son can do nothing of his own, but only what he sees the father doing. He repeats this claim again in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Which means anything Jesus is doing then is sourced in the father. How then could he be in competition to? How then could he be an opponent to trying to eclipse the father? So the, this principle is stated. And, I, and let me pause and make one other point. When Jesus uses the analogy, the language of a father and son, do not think that the, the, the reality, us as fathers and sons, sons and daughters, is the real reality. And Jesus is, as it were, coming along and saying, oh, what, what's my relationship to God like? Well, it's kind of like your father and son's. It's kind of like that. No, I would say God created the universe, and when he created the universe, he created relationships and realities and put them in place so that we might better understand him. In other words, the son's relationship to the father is the primary thing. And all of our relationships as sons and daughters, that's the secondary. God created these relationships so that we might know him better. So it's more like I'm a son to my father sort of, like Jesus is a son to the Father. I'm, I'm the derivative. He's the original. Our relationships are the shadow. So he says he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And here Jesus is entering into an analogy or a way of speaking that would be well known to his audience, less well known to us. I'm, 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 I'm uh, indebted to D.A. Carson, who... Um, in some of his messages, brought this out clearly, and I'm sure I'll be stealing material from him as he explains this. He does such a good job. Most of us do not, it's not common in, our, in the West today for us to have the same profession as our parents. I'm not going to ask, but if I did a show of hands, how many of you are doing the exact same profession your parents did? There would not be many hands. That would not be the case in the first century. So that in the other Gospels, Jesus is referred to in some places as the carpenter's son, and in other places as the carpenter. The notion of the family business, taking it on, is a common enough notion. And so the idea that sons imitate their fathers is, is, is a well-known picture and understanding. And especially when you're thinking of craftsmen, gifted artists, and Carson uses the example of uh, Stradivarius, the maker of um, magnificent violins. And 
the dutiful son is, is, is not trying to be an innovator. He's not trying to develop his own techniques, but rather recognizing the mastery of his father and his craft. He's paying attention and he's, he's imitating him and he's learning from him. And Jesus' next statement, point B here, you can write the word foundation next to that, makes it clear that this imitation of the son is, is fully embraced by the father. Maybe you could imagine a son who's, who's trying to usurp his father. You can think of Absalom trying to overthrow David. There can be sons who, even as they try to take their father's work, try to cast off their fathers, lest anyone think that's going on here. Jesus is able to do this precisely because the father is showing him. Again, the, the picture being with Stradivarius. Stradivarius Sr. is showing his son all the secrets of how he mixes the paints and chooses the wood and dries it and prepares it. The son has full access. Well, we'll take that and press out even further. The father loves the son and the demonstration of that love, and and I've said this before, we think of God's love towards us primarily in redemptive categories, right? So John 3, 16, how does God show his love for the world? He sent his son we might not die, that we may not perish, we may not suffer in our sins. So when we experience God's love for us, it's primarily in categories of forgiveness and patience and grace and mercy. The Father has never shown patience, grace, or mercy to the Son that I'm aware of because he's never needed it. So when Jesus speaks of the way that the Father loves him, it's in different categories, different expressions of love. And here, how does the Father show love to the Son? a full and complete and total self-disclosure. He shows him all that he is doing. There is no nook or cranny of the Father's activity that the Son is not privileged to behold and invited to imitate. That's, that's the, the level of the love for the fa- of the Father for the Son. And the Son, I think by implication here, his love for the Father is seen in his imitation of what he sees. So the principle, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He needs to see it for him to imitate it. And then we see in the next statement, the father loves the son and shows. So there's the seeing and the showing. Father shows, the son sees, and everything he sees, he imitates, and he sees all that the father does. All that the father does. This then becomes the basis of, Why later in the gospel, Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because get this, Jesus does plus or minus nothing other than what he sees the Father do. And Jesus sees plus and minus everything that the Father does. So there's no addition or subtraction. There's a perfect imitation and there's a perfect apprehension, a perfect seeing, a full seeing. The son sees all that the father does and the son images and repeats and copies and puts into practice all that he sees. This is the basis for Jesus' statement. You've seen the father, you've seen me because everything Jesus does is a reflection of the father. Nothing is original. Nothing is of himself and nothing is left out. Nothing is missing. That's what it means for the son to be the son of the father and the father to be Father to the Son. Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. By the way, notice the repetition of that word in the ESV, doing or do. The Son can do nothing but what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. This gets back to their initial charge. Look back in verse 16. This is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Two things, presumably. One, he was healing a man, which they would understand to be work on the Sabbath, and he told the man to pick up his mat. So he's doing things they don't like on the Sabbath. And so it's, it's kind of funny. In the same way that the man, when he's questioned, hey, why are, you, why are you doing this the Sabbath? Well, Jesus told me to do it. Jesus is, in essence, saying, I'm just imitating my father. If you've got a problem with what I'm doing, really take it up with my father because he's working and I'm, I'm, he wants me to. It's his will that I imitate what he does. Remarkable claim. Here's, here's your foundation and basis for Jesus imaging the father. This, this is how, back in 118, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the father, who is at the father's side, 
he has made him known. In the Greek, there's literally to translate, to exposit, to reveal. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father precisely because he does everything he sees, plus or minus nothing in the Father. This is the notion of sonship that's applied in the uh, Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They shall be called sons of God. And it's not as though Jesus is teaching justification by peacemaking. Rather, the assumption is to the degree you make peace, you image that you're of God's family and household. Why? Because God is the ultimate peacemaker. This is the same rationale at work when they call people sons of Belial, sons of worthlessness. It's, it's when, when, when the Jews use that term, it's not a disparagement on your mother suggesting anything was done untowards there. Rather, it's saying something like, you're so utterly disgusting and worthless that the only possible explanation for your worthlessness is that you're part of the worthless family. That's what they're saying. And so Jesus is saying he's the son of God. He's part of the God family. And, and the God family such that the father is pleased to show him all that he's doing, show him all his work. And we're going to see in the very next verses with some examples what that means. He means all. So you and I can be sons and daughters of God and that we can image, we can reflect, we can be peacemakers because he's a peacemaker. We can be patient because he's patient. We can be forgiving because he's forgiving. You and I will never create a universe. Contra, say, Mormonism. No, no, we'll never imitate God in that way. There are ways we will never imitate the Father. But yet Jesus imitates the Father in every imaginable way. That's, that's what's being said. And not only that, Jesus says, the Father not only has shown him all that he's doing, but greater works than these will he show him. There's, there's, there's more to come. The Father has greater works to show and reveal for the Son to imitate and to do. And the purpose of these greater works is that you all might marvel. We're kind of getting into God's purpose here, but part of the way to understand how it is the case that Jesus is by no means competing with, vying for the Father's glory, the Father's prerogative and privilege, is because the purpose of putting the Son on display is the Father's purpose. And again, this makes sense. Uh, every, Every springtime, I go to graduation parties thrown by proud parents for their child or children who've graduated from high school and they put all their accomplishments on display and there's a sense in which behold the glory of my son and my daughter. Behold their accomplishments. Come and celebrate with me. Right? And that's good and fitting as far as it goes. What we're finding out in our text this morning is redemption and God's plan of redemption in some senses is similar to that. A proud father a loving father who intends for the universe to see the glory of his son and to honor his son. I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, but, but look down, look down to, uh, to verse uh, 22. That they all may honor the son just as they honor the father. That's, that's the father's purpose. The father intends for all creation to honor his son with the same honor and same glory of, that he has. So Jesus cannot be understood to be in competition or a threat to the Father and his glory, but rather this is the Father's purpose and plan. The Father will show him greater things precisely so that we may marvel. The Father understands his Son is marvelous, and he would have us understand and marvel as well. Greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. And then point D, um, let's see, C2 is purpose, that you might marvel. D, we get an example of one of these greater works. Here's an example. For, here's another coordinating conjunction, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In some respects, this miracle that Jesus has just worked demonstrates that he's made this man whole. He's enlivened him. He's healed him. And Jesus makes the claim that one of the greater works that we will see and marvel at, which is going to begin in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus, and ultimately that is a picture of Jesus raising the dead at the end of time when he returns. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Remarkable claim. And again, we're getting back to attributes of God that you and I don't have 
So Deuteronomy 32, 29, the Lord God says, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. God says, I've got no competitors. I'm in a class of my own. And one of the things that makes me in a class of my own is that I and I alone kill and make alive. Except Jesus says here, well, just as the Father makes alive, so do I. That's one of the greater works the Father has for the Son, that we may marvel. He fully means what he says when he says he's God's equal. This is now on the side of the the road, lest we think he's little g God, that just because he's not doing anything um, original to himself, nothing from himself, but only what he sees, that somehow he's inferior, somehow he's lesser than. No. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let me get to example number two. Point E, example. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I mean, this, this is epochal. We're gonna, next week, we're going to see the two resurrections that all will be raised. And Jesus has just declared it's He and His Word and His power that will raise the dead on the final day. And now we learn that those dead who are raised will be judged by the Son, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And again, this is the type of prerogative that God and God alone has. When God comes down to examine Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says to him in Genesis 18:25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death of the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And you read through the Psalms, and again and again you see the psalmist cry out, Come, O judge of the earth, and judge the earth in righteousness. And the saints rejoice, because God will one day judge the earth in righteousness. And now we learn, well, he's given that judgment to the Son. God will judge the world in righteousness in and through God the Son. These are staggering claims. He is fully God. He is fully God's equal, even as he is perfectly and absolutely subservient to the Father. That's what we're learning. That's what we're learning. And God's purpose in this, we saw the first purpose statement at the end of uh, verse 20, that you might marvel. Now we see the next purpose statement in verse 22, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then he says it negatively. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, if you, if you want a proof for the deity of Christ, I, I can think of no better place than here. God if you read your Bible, you read your Old Testament, one thing becomes clear. He is jealous for his glory. He doesn't put up well with rivals. And you just think of the people in the golden calf incident and, and how God judged the people. You, you think of statements like Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. What was God's charge against Eli ultimately for failing to disrobe, to take out of the priesthood his sons because of their evil? He said, you've honored your sons above me. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind. God does not put up with competitors well. He smashes idols. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the God is one. And now we realize the Father intends, the Father's purpose is that all may honor the Son. And if that's all that was said, we wouldn't have proved the deity of Jesus. God, in some sense, intended for Moses to have honor. And when Miriam... And his brother challenged Moses' right to to lead. God vindicates Moses. But next we get the degree. To what degree of honor does the father intend for the son to be glorified and honored? Just as they honor the father. The father intends for Jesus to receive a degree of glory and praise and honor equal just as his own. Jesus has to be divine. Jesus has to be God for this to be true. Or God is an idolater. For God to intend for anything other than himself to receive glory equal with himself would be idolatry. Would it not? 
So only if Jesus is worthy of this honor, only if Jesus is divine, can he receive this honor. We're going to see in the gospel, Jesus received worship. In chapter 9, the man born blind, when Jesus tells him he is Christ worships him. Jesus receives his worship. Thomas, when Jesus is raised from the dead and sees the hole in his side and the holes in his hand, says, my Savior and my God. Jesus receives worship. Only God can receive worship. These are clear claims. If anyone, we have some cults alive today that claim to follow Christ, but they make him less than God. Passages like this are, I think, undeniable. If, if Jesus is to be taken seriously, if his word is to be believed, the Father intends for him to receive the same degree of honor and glory that he has, which means not only does the Son co-acting with the Father, they're in unison in activity, but they're in unison in glory, fully united both in activity and in glory. And then lest any misunderstanding happen, this is common with John. He'll say it positively, they don't say it negatively. It leaves no wiggle room. Here's the consequence Therefore, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You see, far from the possibility that Jesus bringing glory to himself, Jesus making a name for himself might be seen as competition to God, which is how the Jews would naturally view it. Here is somebody trying to take the spotlight off of God. Here is somebody trying to draw attention and glory to himself rather than God. Jesus says, actually, to refuse to give me that glory is to dishonor God. And again, the language of the picture of a father and son makes sense. If I didn't go to someone's graduation party because I said, why didn't you go? Because I understood that their parents were more glorious than them and I didn't want to dishonor their parents by giving any glory or honor to their children. Their parents would be displeased. Would they not say the very reason we threw this party was that you might come and rejoice in the goodness, the glory of my child and their, their accomplishments, Right? We get that parents delight in their children being honored for their achievements. The father intends for the son to be glorified with the glory the father has. We're going to see in John 17, this is accomplished through the father giving the son a people to redeem. God setting in motion the plan of redemption that the saviorhood of his son, the submission of his son, the willingness to suffer of his son, the mercy and kindness of his son might be fully put on display and seen precisely because he intends for it to be glorified. And in glorifying the son, we glorify the father. This is, this is the language of Philippians 2. I mean, let me just read this briefly. God has, at the end of the passage, but Christ humbling himself to the point of death, death and death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ex exaltation, the glorification, of Jesus, the giving to him of a name that is above every name, so that everything in creation, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, confesses and praises Jesus, ultimately gives glory to the Father. There is, there is no tension. Do I glorify the Son or do I glorify the Father? Yes. And if you refuse to glorify the Son, there is no glorifying of the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, Jesus is going to pause here for a moment. We've got to move quickly to get through the next verse. And he's going to state some of the significance of what he said. He's got more to say about his relationship to the Father. Even more jaw-dropping things than we've seen this morning, next week. As the Father has life in himself, so he's given the Son to have life in himself. That is an amazing statement. But he pauses here in verse 24 to help give us some of the significance. Why? Why? Make a deal of this, Jesus, here and now. Why make such a point? Why, why bring out such challenging and hard and deep truth? Why do that? Because Jesus insists that how you respond to his word determines your eternity. How you respond to his word determines your eternity. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. To put it simply, Jesus says here, and I believe he says elsewhere in John 8 most notably, 
you must believe he is God in the flesh. Before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe that I am, he says, you will die in your sins. Belief, recognizing Jesus is God, is essential, an essential element in salvation. And because of that, he puts it forward. He makes, it, he makes an opportunity to say it and to clarify it. And here he says, look, whoever hears these words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. How you respond to Jesus' word, and in particular, this word of Jesus, determines your eternity. This is one of the reasons why, say, Mormons, who agree with us on many points, ethics, but don't agree the deity of Jesus, we view as not as part of the church or another denomination, but as a different religion with doctrines of demons. Because at this point, they don't hear Jesus' word. They don't believe him who sent him. And therefore, they don't have eternal life, and they do come into judgment, and they've not passed from death to life. Jesus insists this teaching is critical, which explains why he makes such a point of it why he creates this moment, and why it's important for us to receive it. So quickly, first we get the condition, the condition. Truly, truly, I say to you. And their condition is, point one and point two, receive and believe. Receive and believe. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So let's take those both quickly. Hearing Jesus' word is more than simply the the sound waves entering your ear. Hearing someone is receiving what they're saying, believing what they're saying. In John 8, we don't have time to go there. He talks about um, his word having no place in them because they're not his sheep. About how they have to continue in his word. So Jesus is saying more than just simply hearing it, but to hear, to heed it might be a better way of saying it. To receive it. At the end of chapter 3, John opines, no one believes his testimony. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I've told you heavenly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you earthly things? You, you haven't believed my testimony, says Nicodemus, who again was a representative of the Jews in Jerusalem who'd seen miracles and believed in his name. Chapter 5 is, is the answer to that. What is, what is insufficient? It's insufficient to believe Jesus is a powerful miracle worker. You've got to believe he's very God of very God. Your, your eternal life, escaping judgment, is, is, hangs in that balance. The condition, truly, truly, I say to you, hear his word. Receive his word and believe him who sent me. And again, that's an that's a interesting shift there. You'd expect whoever hears my word and believes me. But he, he, he links what you do with Jesus' word with the one who sent him. And he's just given us the basis for that, hasn't he? Jesus' whole mission, Jesus' whole activity is the Father's initiative, the Father's intention that he be glorified. The Father has sent him to do this. And so Jesus is assuming what you do with his word is what you do with the one who sent him. Whoever hears my word and believes not me, but him who sent me. They're so unified that not only do they act in unity and their glory is unified, but Jesus' word is the very word of the Father. Believe him who sent me. If you can receive Jesus' word, if you can believe who he is and what he says about himself, believe he is the one the Father has sent, then we get to the consequence quickly. Three, three ways of stating the consequence. It's less three separate things and more three ways of looking at one thing. First, has eternal life, salvation. He's been talking about this throughout the gospel. Most recently with the woman at the well. Waters that are freely given to those who ask, welling up in eternal life. Second, does not come into judgment, which you can put your blank there, justification or forgiveness. You escape judgment. All judgment has been given to the Son, And Jesus is now stating the condition upon which you will not be judged negatively. Receive and believe his word about who he says he is. Believe the judge or face the judge. Those are your options. Receive Jesus' word as who he is and who sent him or face him as judge. You can escape judgment or face the judge. And finally, as passed from death into life. Regeneration. Regeneration is passed from death into life. Jesus makes this point 
about his deity, about his equality with the Father, knowing it will be hard for the Jews to, to wrap their heads around, knowing it's going to need clarification, knowing he's going to need to bring out half a chapter of defense for such a large claim, and he does it with a good and loving purpose. The good and loving purpose is you and I must believe and receive this. And if you will believe and receive this, you have Jesus' word that you currently are having eternal life, that you will not come into judgment, that you have not passed from death into life. So I'll just close by by calling on you. We're not going to be able to sing our closing song this morning. I'm sorry. I've gone long. This is a this is a intimidating passage for me. And just challenge you to 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 settle. And I've talked to somebody. I know there are some here. This is the very issue you're working through. God bless you. But settle and understand there's there's no mid middle position. Good men don't make statements like this. Good leaders and Good people don't make claims like this. That they're going to judge everyone. That they are going to be the ones who raise the dead. That they should receive glory equal with the glory the Father receives. God can say that. God in the flesh can say that. He's Lord. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. You you can't have him as a good man and good teacher. And Jesus condemns the Jews in Jerusalem. We'll see later in the next couple of weeks, precisely because they don't receive this. He condemns the Jews in John chapter 8, calls them of their father the devil for the same reason. But for those who do receive his word, rejoice in the knowledge that this one who speaks for God, this one who acts for God, he has given his word that if you receive and believe his word, that you have eternal life, that you will not come into judgment, that you have already passed from death into life. Praise God that he clarifies and makes this point because that is a wonderful promise. And Jesus has just established the basis on which he can make such a bold and gracious promise. Let's, Let's close in prayer. Lord God, hallelujah, that we might have before us the hopes, the promise of escaping judgment, of eternal life, being passed from death into life. Lord, the stakes could not be higher. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith, that you would give us insight, that we might be those who receive your word, believe you sent him. We might be counted as those who do receive your testimony. And, and not be like those Jews in Jerusalem who, who do not and are condemned. Um, so give us faith. And then give us the faith to treat Jesus as who he says he is. To treat him as God in the flesh. To give him the glory and the honor with our lives that you intend us to give him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.